0: Hi everybody and welcome to Martin Van Dyke Undercovers. For just about 60 years, Jerry Lee Lewis has been a monumental figure in American life, the wildest and most dangerous of the early rock and rollers. He electrified the world with hit records such as Whole Lot of Shakin' Going On, Great Balls of Fire, and Breathless. Now for the first time, Lewis's story is told in full as he shared it over two years with the Pulitzer Prize winning writer Rick Bragg. The new book from rick is called jerry lee lewis his own story recently i had a chance to talk to rick Bragg about this incredible new biography of jerry lee lewis and i asked him how this project came about was it his idea was it jerry lee's idea or was it the publisher's idea or was it a combination of all three well
1: it was kind of a combination of all three uh jerry lee wanted to to do a book he thought it was time he wanted to tell his side of things uh but he is that unusual kind of guy who even as he is telling his side of things he doesn't much care what you think or I think or anyone thinks. You know, he's that's just kind of the the nature of Jerry Lee. But he wanted to I think at this point in his life he wanted to have his say. And um uh and if you and if you can't quite grasp that kind of contradiction then, then you just have to understand Jerry Lee Lewis. But uh, but uh, a publishing house Harper Collins bought the, as I understand it, I don't really get involved in that stuff, but bought the rights and and fairly uh, agreed to talk. And after I think a few starts and stops, they settled on me. Uh, um, and I got a call asking me if I was interested, and, and I probably should have gone and hid under my bed, but uh, uh, instead I, I I said yeah. How could this not be fun? How could it not be interesting? And
0: how were these sessions? How long did it take to record all of these conversations with Jerry Lee and turn these into a book? And and what was this? What is this man like? I mean, he just looks like he is still yeah. Doesn't care what you think, and still <laughs> absolutely shoots from the hip, and is pretty uh, pretty volatile guy. What was this like?
1: Well, he's you know he's he he was actually. Um well, he was still Jerry Lee Lewis. You know, he still had a, a loaded 357 Magnum behind his pillow. He uh, he was still ready to fight you over an, an insult. Uh, you know, in that he has not changed. And he can still play the piano like it's going out of style. But um, I went to him across two summers. Uh, I can't tell you how many hours I spent with him, but, you know, I spent days sometimes two or three days in a row sometimes a day sometimes um a week and um all it took about three years to uh to bring the book in
0: oh, my goodness talk about this the, this hit that was so important to him in 1955 whole lot of shaking going on i guess the a lot of contemporary ears this sounds so innocent but my goodness this song was about as salacious as you could possibly get in the mid-1950s right and this is this is truly the song that put him on the map tell us a little bit about this song and 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 how it caught on fire on radio stations across the country it wasn't a, an immediate hit was it
1: no and it, it came a little bit later it came after uh you know elvis's great string of hits and then um Jerry Lee had had a small hit with the country song Crazy Arms and um, had gotten a lot of great attention, but it was not that blockbuster, that big hit record that he needed. And um, He heard the song played for the first time, um, yes, in the mid-'50s, and and, uh, he heard it at a honky-tonk outside Natchez, Mississippi on Highway 61 and uh, a house band at a place called the Wagon Wheel was playing it and um, Jerry Lee was a little bit late that night he he came strolling into the to the beer joint just in time to hear the band kick off this song this blues song that if you believe the legend was was written by a bunch of men drinking wine and milking rattlesnakes on Lake Okeechobee (laughs) Um, and and he uh, it just brought him up cold I mean it was just kind of the perfect honky tonk song and uh, uh, you know we we didn't know really what to call rock and roll when he first heard it you know and, and uh, rock and roll had a name but, but Jerry Lee wasn't sure about his place in it and he heard that song and he as he tells me he says I just you know I stored it away in my mind you know I stored it away and the next night, he came in and played it himself, and uh, uh, and he would play it on the road, and it would make people go wild. But it was a little too salacious for for to be commercially successful. And uh, when he finally recorded it, uh, even Sam Phillips, the you know the great kingmaker at Sun Records, um, said, you know, I, you know, I just think it's not a commercial record. It's too dirty. And, um, uh, but uh, you know, it, it 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 did make some radio play, and of course was immediately banned, and would have stayed banned if uh, Sam Phillips' brother Judd had not taken Jerry Lee, put him on a train to New York City, and gone up and talked Steve Allen into uh, listening to the boy play the piano and sing that song, and. Alan put him on television that night, and the place went wild. And because of the power of television, uh, it was just too good a song to ban.
0: Talk a little bit, Rick, about his uh, relationships with uh, his contemporaries. And you write so well about uh, his friendships and, boy, the competitive nature with everyone from Ray Charles to... Buddy Holly and, uh, boy, especially uh, Chuck Berry. Uh, Talk about some of the people he was closest to and people he competed the most with on on stage as well.
1: Well, you know, early on it was Johnny Cash. Um, And uh, Johnny Cash would would listen to Jerry Lee, uh, you know, from the wings. Johnny was the bigger name. When they first started playing together as young men on tours across the country, across Canada, and um, you know he just turned pale watching Jerry Lee and thinking, "I have to follow that," and um, and you know he Jerry Lee fought Carl Perkins across the trunk of a Buick. Uh, but the, the the most tenuous relationship would have been Carl would have been uh, Chuck Bear. Chuck had. Uh, you know, had the bigger name and uh, and believed he had earned the right. Uh, he'd already done prison time. You know, he he believed he'd earned the right to go on before this, I mean, to, to go on last and not have to go on before this pup, you know, and uh, that, of course, led to, you know, many near fistfights and led to the night on stage that Jerry Lee finished his set did two or three encores or three or four i can't remember and then before yielding the stage to chuck berry took out a small coke bottle of gasoline sprinkled it on the piano and set it on fire and played as the piano burned and as chuck seethed in the wings and and uh that contention went on a good bit longer
0: <laughs> incredible incredible so with uh, all of this uh, fame and all of these best-selling records, a lot of shaking going on, great balls of fire, breathless, high school confidential, and everything basically burned. Yeah, talk about things burning. His career just about burned to the ground in, in 1958 on this trip to England. Uh, it's, it's incredible that he ever recovered from this. This was... Uh, about as bad as uh, a PR disaster as you can get, right? Tell tell us what happened.
1: Well, it, it was it was it was almost the end of Jerry Lee as far as um, his music career went. He had three or four, I think, four songs in the top one hundred, and uh, you know he had decided that he was going to take Elvis's crown. He was just going to take it. And he uh, uh he did a pretty good job of doing that. And uh uh the Associated Press and all manner of, of uh all manner of uh writers at the time were already crowning Jerry Lee as, as you know, the, the the king of rock and roll and, and uh the new king. Mm-hmm. And uh uh he you know, books a tour uh, to England his first real international tour and uh, he'd been to Australia but this was like this was to be the tour that put him at the pinnacle of his craft and uh, he decided to take his his 13 year old third cousin and bride uh, Myra with him he felt that he you know, should not have to hide her he took her with him to England despite warnings from Sam Phillips of Sun Records and others that if he did so it would be the end of his of his stardom and he he shows up in the airport in London with Mama. Uh reporters take probably just a you know a few minutes to to zero in on her and ask Miss who are you? And she says, I'm Jerry Lee's wife. And that was the beginning of, uh, not the end, but it was the beginning of one of the most um, dramatic falls,
0: uh, I think, in music history. Mm. And he didn't, in your book, he didn't, was he really aware at how disastrous this was all going? It seemed like he was trying to put on a, a brave face, but uh, he must have inside realized that everything was coming apart, or or was he? It's sometimes hard to tell. I
1: I think that most most people, uh, even most superstars, for lack of a better cliche, would have. But you have to kind of know Jerry Lee Lewis. Jerry Lee Lewis doesn't, Lee Lewis doesn't see himself as someone that can fall or that can be hurt. He he believes that if he just has time that he can win people over with the power of the music, with the power of that piano. He And he believed even as the headlines just set him aflame in London, in England as a whole, even as he was just being just tortured in uh, the press. He believed that if he just had a little more time, if he just had a little more time, he could win the people back. He always believed it was more the press than the people. And of course, you know, in, in many cases, people blame the press for everything. They blame the media for everything. But in this case, it, it was kind of a crusade led by headlines. And Jerry Lee believed that, you know, the people were not really against him if he could just hang on, if he could just hang on, he could win them back. And no, he, he uh, I don't think he ever believed that uh, that the people had really turned on him, even when he came home to the States and, and people were smashing his records. And, uh, people like Dick Clark, you know, were turning their backs on him, um, I don't think he ever really believed believe that, and if you talk to him now, he will occasionally say when speaking of the British fans, he'll say, they were real nice to us um, mm. you not not delusional at all. he knows that things went bad, he knows that things went wrong, but he is still slow to come to the to the to the point that the
0: people turned on him mm. So by all accounts, washed up in 1958 with this, uh, with the uh, everything happening in England. Ten years later, he writes you write in 1968. He's the hottest country star in the nation. How did this happen? I mean, this is just an unbelievable turn of events. Yeah, he's a hot star again, and not in rock and roll, but in country. How the heck did that happen? Well,
1: I think I think it's because he never went away from country. You know, the the B side to yeah. so many of his rock and roll hits were country music hits. And Jerry Lee is is entwined with country music as he yeah. is entwined with soul and jazz and 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 honky tonk and blues, especially blues. You know he is he is uh, there there are elements of all that music certainly probably less jazz than anything else but but blues country gospel those things all permeate his music so he didn't go country he just waited for the right new song and you know he had always covered great country music songs like Ray Price's Crazy Arms and like Hank Williams You Win Again he'd always covered those those songs and put his stamp on them. But in the late uh, 60s, he, again, a full decade after the fall, after he had been clawing his way back one honky-tonk, one auditorium at a time, he he records a song called um, Another Place Another Time, which was a... People called it hard country because it wasn't as smushy, as mushy as, uh, as country music had become. And he... He played the heck out of it, and he put that he put that little bit of honky tonk into his piano roll, and, and he and he and he sang this mournful song about being only being able to have a woman for as long as the jukebox plays, and got it. You know, the people that were working in factories and delivering milk and you know swinging hammers, the people that had loved him as a rock and roller, rock and roll had gone away from them. And now all of a sudden, here's Jerry Lee Lewis back, you know, with a with a country music song that they could kind of cling to, and mm-hmm. um, it make per- it really does make perfect sense in a sociological kind of way. And I don't usually use words like sociological when talking about Jerry Lee, but uh, uh, it made perfect sense.
0: What would you say was the most surprising thing you discovered about Jerry Lee Lewis and all of these conversations with their? Anything about his personality, about his career, that just really stood out and surprised you above any anything else, Rick?
1: Well, there are a couple of historical things. One was his one was his relationship with Elvis. Um, you know, I th- there are so many versions, and we, we we keep wanting to we keep wanting to pigeonhole his relationship with Elvis. You know, he loved Elvis he hated Elvis he was jealous of Elvis Elvis was jealous of him we keep wanting to make kind of a pat and perfect label for that and the truth is it was all things I don't think he ever hated Elvis I think he was hurt that he paid such a terrible price he paid such a terrible price for his relationship with 13 year old Myra for that marriage where Elvis you know took Young Priscilla Presley, you know behind the gates of Graceland, and people talk you know talked about what a good boy he was for you know letting her come of age there and of course, depending on you know how much common sense you apply to this might um, not been as as might not have been as, as, uh, might not have been as uh, straight up and down middle American as it was trade and 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 so jerry lee did resent that that he paid such a terrible price where elvis got a pass but the fact is that you know he had loved elvis's music he he and elvis were friends uh they would elvis would have jerry lee come and and um play at his house there in memphis and Jerry Lee would play sometimes one song over and over a song like Come What May things like that and he would he would he would play and Elvis would lean on the piano lid and just listen and you know they understood each other they were both assembly of God boys who loved their mamas and, and found in rock and roll this kind of pure thing uh, that lifted them out of out of a life of of, uh, so much less. And, uh, you know, that was very interesting to me kind of historically just in the culture of American music. His relationship with Chuck Berry and the other old rock and rollers was certainly fun. But what I, I was surprised at was how gracious he was. Because I went in there knowing that I'd have to ask him hard questions, hard questions about the deaths of two sons, the deaths of two wives. I knew that I would have to ask him hard, ugly questions, uh, heartbreaking questions, um, and I knew that that was going to be um, there's going to be difficult at best. But you know, Jerry Lee Lewis didn't want to be whitewashed. You know, he doesn't want to be whitewashed because that would make him like everyone else and make him like us. And um so that didn't surprise me so much. What surprised me was how gracious he was to me personally. He was he, he was almost kind most mm. of the time. Most of the time. Sometimes I made him a little mad. Then I had to worry about the history of Jerry Lee. He really did shoot his bass player in the chest with a 357 Magnum. <sighs> uh, you know, and a. Uh, uh, Coke bottle probably saved the man's life, and he didn't mean to shoot him. He was—he and a whole room full of men were drunk, all you know, home from the road, and someone handed him a loaded three fifty seven and said, "Be careful, it has a hair trigger." And the next thing you know, the poor guy's bleeding all over the white shag carpeting. So, you know, you can't make this stuff up, and it's just <laughs> part of living with Jerry Lee.
0: It's—I mean, this. A, this is the only man in music alive who makes you know someone like Keith Richards just seem really conservative and quiet. You know? <laughs> I mean, just, well, you I mean, know, they, they, Jerry God. Lee was
1: the Jerry Lee was the. In some ways, he was the beginning of the bad boy rock and roller, and he thinks it's all it's very amusing to see these these guys that are mostly hairspray and spandex. He he finds that to be kind of funny, you know. And that, uh, you know he if a man if a drunk interrupted a song, Jerry Lee would hit him in the face with the butt end of the microphone, set. "And that's not myth. It's just the way he he loved the stage. He thought he needed to protect the stage because without the stage, then there was just nothing." There's nothing to catch him if he ever fell off that stage. And he and he did a pretty good job of falling off it. But he, he you know, there was nothing to catch. There was no, as I described once, he he played with a blind piano player named um, Paul Whitehead. And in one way, they were the same because you know, Paul Whitehead could, you know, beyond the stage, there was just this black nothingness for him. And it was the same way in a lot of ways for the young Jerry Lee Lewis. There's nothing beyond the stage.